Good morning. How are you all doing? Folks still gathering from worship? That's a good thing. We dig that. Praise God. We're glad that each and every one of you are here today. However you happen to end up here, we thank God for the fact that you've joined us for worship. We are, we are blessed to worship with you, so I hope you understand that about Family Bible Church. Hebrews has been a stunning study of the, the beauty of Jesus, his unique position, role, person in the universe, but, but it's also been this beautiful study of the continuation of faith that we all, you and I all share. I've been so poignantly um, shown how your faith connects to my faith and my faith connects to someone else's faith and we're all being drawn together in what the scripture would say is this great train, the great veil or train of people who come behind the good news of Jesus together. That, that things like life or death don't separate us from those who worship Jesus. Things like circumstances don't separate us from those who worship Jesus. That those um, things that we have and things that we don't have, that the the different socioeconomic things in this world, let alone, I mean, eternal separate, you know, like eternally, we are connected to those who worship Jesus. And we just came out of Hebrews chapter 11, which is such a poignant reminder that our faith is, is nothing more or less than a continuation of the faith of those who've come before, right? And all that that entails. And that's not dismissive, that's just a fact. And then today we're going to turn our hearts toward um, chapter 12 and talking about what this faith life looks like then, right? I kind of told you that Hebrews 11 has this kind of crescendo effect, you know, or like this, and then we kind of just ride out the rest of the book now through 13 um, after this. But there's a purpose to that. There's a purpose to the exhortation we find in 11, and we're going to find that today in chapter 12. We're going to do what we always do before we enter into God's Word. We're going to pray for revelation that he would show us what he would have for us this morning through his Word. So I'm going to ask you to pray with us that we would understand Scripture together, and then we're going to just talk through Hebrews chapter 12. Pray with me if you will. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come now into your time in your Word, and um, we do separate it because we believe that your Word is set apart um, as a gift to your people that by reading and having eyes to see and ears to see, to hear what your word says, uh, it would help us to see the truth, to know the truth of the gospel. We, we would be able to see Jesus through your word. And, and we pray, Father, that um, we would be submitted to this process. We don't claim to have any wisdom or knowledge of our own. We claim only to, to need your revelation. So today, as we open your word, would you show us what you would have for us? Uh, would you give us, just set aside all of our, our, our sinfulness and our selfishness and all that stuff and, and help us to just experience you to have you speak into parts of our lives that we need you to speak into, that we might be more like you. Your word brings a, a conviction that you are right and we are wrong, so we want to know righteousness. Would you help us stay with that, Father? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 12, where we're going to pick up after chapter 11, what we begin to realize as a point of fact is that life in uh, faith will not be easy. Like, not that it's optionally hard sometimes, but that it, it will not be easy. And uh, there's our page today, by the way, 844. We're going to jump in here. We're going to talk. We, we ended last week talking about the first three verses of chapter 12. We're going to recover those just for a minute, and then we're going to jump into the, the rest of that chapter. This is what the Word says, then. After this great celebration of the saints, of the faith, of the past, of the first testament of God's deliverance of his people, we, we get into scripture here and it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And we talked about that a little bit, about how stuff 
can trip us up, how stuff can, we can get stuck in sin and, and be all cut up by sin. We can, we can have just the, the mess of life around our feet and cause us to stumble forward and, and not have our feet under us, not running well. But what I want to begin with today is talking about that second part of that verse that says this, and let us, that's you and I, and those who believe in Jesus, he's writing to the Jewish believers, let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. This coming Saturday, there's going to be a, a 5K run walk thing here in Highland, right? The relevant Pregnancy Option Center is sponsoring it. And actually, by the way, as a side note, they're looking for street uh, volunteers to stand on the streets and just direct runners where to go. That's kind of the image here that, that there's a course marked for us to run. I don't know if you've ever driven around Highland and stuff. You've seen some of the streets will have little spray-painted arrows on them and stuff with like a circle and a, maybe an angle or a straight line. You know, do not turn here. These instructions to the runners, because when you're running a race, it's easy to make a wrong turn. At, at the really critical intersections, they put people in orange vests. You know, they stop traffic. Keep going. This is the direction. You're on the right path. Sometimes when you're running a race marked out for you, you might be so slow that, that everyone else is gone. And, and if without the people directing, you'd have no idea where the crowd went. Maybe that's only my experience. <laughs> hey, it's about finishing. <laughs> okay, I'll just say that. Or maybe you're out in front and there's no one to even, but someone went ahead and they marked out a course for you. The scriptures are powerful here because what it says is don't get caught up in the sin and the stuff that tangles us up, but run with race the course that's been marked out for you. Well, for us is what it says. The, the word us is used here repeatedly, right? But those of us who believe. I think there's great power in understanding that reality. God has this, we're his individual creation, but he has a, a plan and a purpose for our lives. And there is a course marked for us to run. And the danger sometimes in watching other runners runners and not watching the courses that we could, we could think we're supposed to run like them, run a different pace, run a different a route. But, but Jesus directs his people, says, no, instead, let us run the race with perseverance that's marked out for us. By the way, that also means that God knows that you can finish the race that God knows that you were on the course, right? That God knows he's called you there and he's not going to leave you there and he's given you the strength to finish. Matter of fact, that's what this whole um, chapter turns into is this idea of having the strength to do what you need to do. Let us then run with perseverance that's not quitting the race marked out for us. Then, we talked about this last week too, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the end, the everything. Jesus is the everything of our faith. It's in him and through him and about him we pursue him in our lives. Reading then about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Last week, I didn't get to cover this. I mean, I'll just spend a second on it, or a few minutes on it here. Isn't it a powerful thing? We have this cross up here this morning, but isn't it a powerful thing that we recognize that this cross that Jesus bore for our sins was no accident? He didn't just happen to end up on the cross, but rather the testimony here is that it was a course marked out for Jesus to run. It was, it was his race to finish. Matter of fact, the word he says on the cross, um, tetelestai, my favorite, right? It is finished. One word. The work is done. Kept the faith. Look at what it says. Who for the joy set before him, there's three things here that Jesus does because of the joy set in front of him. The first is that he endures the cross, right? So there's this idea that, that, that um, the first thing is he didn't quit. He continued the work. Right? He endured the cross, the burden, the sacrifice, the pain. That's 
one part, and that's kind of obvious, right? We know that. Giving his life until his last breath for the work of the gospel. Then the second thing here is really kind of radical, and we can miss it. He scorned its shame. He scorned its shame. See, to be, to be killed on a cross wasn't just a matter of a corp capital punishment. It was an embarrassment. It was a humiliation. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. And Jesus scorned its shame. That's a strange turn of phrase, isn't it? How do you scorn the shame of something? You know, um, in, the, in our lives, we might have gone through or maybe even be going through experiences where we have a tendency to be ashamed. Oh, I'm so ashamed. And, and there are things in our lives where, where, where shame is a, a conviction of the God to lead us to repentance. Uh, Adam and Eve were hiding, right? I mean, they were ashamed, but th- that was a good godly shame to lead them back to repentance. But there are some things in our lives as believers in Jesus that we know he died to forgive our sins, that we know he, he has given everything so that we could be free, and yet we live in this position of shame. And, and this idea of Jesus on the cross scorning the shame is a powerful concept because what it means is, what the word says is that he took it from his mind and he threw it down as worthless. Even the shame of the cross, even the shame of the humiliation, this cross <laughs> is so pretty. I mean, we clean it up so well, make it nice and how it's very structured and very neat and no blood on it, you know? Um, there's no one hanging naked for everyone to laugh at or to mock. But the cross of Jesus was a humiliating process. And this simple word here says that he scorned its shame. He threw it out of his mind. Not only did he endure it, but he said, this is, this is of no consequence. This is of, this is of no part of my consideration that I would be an embarrassment, that, I would, that my, um, whatever you call, ego or name would be mocked. How much could your life be changed if, you just did, if we just did that in Jesus' name? If we just took the things that we were, we're so afraid someone would find out, we're, we're, so, we're so ashamed and we would just throw the shame down out of our mind. We're, you know what? We're going to live in boldness for Jesus. And we're not going to even worry about what people would think or say about who I was or about what I've done or about who I am. Scorning the shame. Oh, I'm convinced that the enemy of God loves to pile the shame on us. Loves it. Loves to keep us in our place. Loves to deny what Jesus says, what the Gospels say, that we are adopted as children, co-heirs with Christ. We sang the words today. Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. And then check it out. The third thing he did is he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, right? Absolute confidence. Caused himself to rest in his Father. This is the the three-part narrative right? Of, we see Jesus modeling. And we fix our eyes on him and how he does these things. Like we, in, we can endure things and we can scorn the shame of things, of, of whatever will oppress us or keep us. And then we can rest in God. Yes. Where do we get confidence? How can you be so sure? Because God said so. Because God's leading me. Because God's marked out my race and I can run with perseverance. I can keep going. I will not be lied to. I will not be deceived on my journey. Verse three says this. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful man. By the way, I want to stop a word. I'm in on the word opposition. It means to speak, um, to speak authoritatively in a negative way. <laughs> you know, it's not just like saying, well, you're not going to make it. It's like, I know for a fact this will end terribly for you, you know. Um, I have it on good authority, you know, that you are going to die a meaningless death or, you know, whatever. It would, he, 
the same thing, that these men, sinful men, spoke this kind of absolute negativity over him. It says, no, consider him who endured that. Why? Too dangerous for us in our faith life. I told you, faith is a dangerous thing, a hard thing, right? It will come with difficulty. Two dangers here listed. First, that you will not grow weary. That's why you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. That's why you have to refix your eyes on Jesus so that you won't grow weary. The idea of weariness is that you can get um, physically sick in your faith life. I mean, I don't mean, I say in your faith life, but I don't mean like in your faith spirituality. I'm spiritually sick. No, I'm talking physical manifestations of not fixing your eyes on Jesus, not remembering the promise, not, not seeing his methodology we just talked about, right? You can become ill. That's what the word means. Grow weary. I just can't take another step. Why can't I go forward anymore? Why am I stuck here? And the scriptures have one answer. You're not fixing your eyes on Jesus. You're believing the lie of the time. So that's the first thing. The danger, first danger is that we would, we would get sick in our life for lack of Jesus, you know. And then the second thing is that you would lose heart. And that's a more spiritual thing. It means that you just kind of come on, the word means unstrung inside. Your, your convictions, what you thought you knew, it just comes apart. And I don't know if you ever um, spend any time in that space. That's dangerous space. You just go, I can't go on. And you start to believe the lie. And you, uh, and you start to lose, you know, if it were possible, I mean, lose your relationship with Jesus. Gro- growing faint in your soul. Those are the, the two dangers, okay, that are listed out. Um, All this because, don't forget God's faithfulness, right? Hebrews 11. Look to Jesus. There's danger in your faith life. Now, we're going to turn and talk then about, so what are some ways through, since I'm telling you adversity will come, right? Hardship will come. um, And I don't don't know, I can't say if, uh, you know, for sure if it's proportional to how much you're obedient to Jesus. You know, I don't have that kind of um, bandwidth to say that. You know, I can't say that's for sure how that works, but um, it will come. I, 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 um, I told you before, um, my biggest fear sometimes is whenever I bump into friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and I say how it's going, and they're like, man, it could not possibly get any better than this, you know? I'm like, okay, you know, buckle up. Um, because that's sometimes what happens right before things get really, really hard, which, which isn't um, negativity, but man, it just seems like that's the case sometimes. So I'm going to give you four things today that we'll pull from Scripture of how you can overcome adversity in your life. I don't know if you need help with that today or not. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're like, man, I'm on top of the world. And I say, praise God, we're celebrating with you, you know. Uh, but when adversity comes, some things that you can do to overcome it. We're going to pick up the word in verse 4, chapter 12. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, right? Um, Last week we talked in the book of Hebrews about all the saints that are named there. And then he says, and how many more should I list? And he says, and he goes to the list and he says, and some of them were almost killed. And one of the things I made a mistake on last week, I mean, I say mistake, right? But one of the things that happened last week is I kept talking about how sometimes the sword almost gets you. And whoo, boy, that was a close call. I could have, I could have been killed. But what the, the, the testimony of scripture, and I think it happens in verse, um, 37-ish of chapter 11, it actually says that some of them didn't have near misses. They were run straight through with the sword. <laughs> that they actually gave their lives. The word says crazy things like they, they were sawed in two, right? They were killed, that they did. So the first um, thing that we get here in verse 4 
is how can you overcome adversity that you're facing right now? The word says that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The way I would interpret that, not saying biblically, but I'm saying, I'm not saying, you know, in the Greek, but I'm saying the way you can interpret that is to say, get some perspective. Do you know what I'm saying? Get some perspective about the adversity you're facing right now. Again, I don't know if you're, you're like me, but sometimes we're like, oh, I'm so persecuted. It's so hard to follow Jesus. I, I can't take another step forward. I'm exhausted. I'm, it's been so hard. And it's something as simple as, I don't know what, um, getting out of bed in the morning or um, taking care of your marriage or uh, doing your work, um, whether that's in school or, or in your business. Uh, you know, and we equate this into persecution. It's so hard. Not making fun of it, it is hard, but man, this scripture reminds us that there is a high price to pay in faith. And you've, you and I have not yet paid it. We've not yet paid the price in our own blood. I remember a while back um, when I was a, a new, newer Christian, um, not that I'm an older Christian now, but um, cause I still feel like I learn so much all the time, but I was journeying with a brother and a mentor, someone I really looked up to in my life. You know, he had been a believer for a while, and he really had poured into me, and I was just like, man. And we were having this honest conversation together, and he said, um, I just don't know. This is nuts. I don't know if I can go forward. He was kind of like throwing, like ready to throw up his hands and, and you know, and I'm going to say this because I'm not claiming any wisdom in this. I'm telling you, I'm, I, I had not, not, this wasn't like some pre-plan. I just, um, this verse, God brought it to mind like that. Yeah, but neither one of us have resisted the point of shedding our own blood, right? Right? I mean, whatever hardship you're facing, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And that wasn't me. It was funny because um, the conversation turned in that moment for both of us. Wow. Yeah. What, what am I complaining about here? What's, and, and not to say that shedding our own blood is the absolute worst thing, but that, that's just, this is like a marker. Is it, is it that bad yet? Maybe some perspective would help us to understand what we're going through. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Um, and, and sometimes, by the way, too, we can um, take other people's suffering and make it our own, right? And there's some good to that, but as long as you understand that that's other people's suffering. When you hear about Christians that are persecuted in the world right now, we go, oh, that's a tragedy. And it is a tragedy, but it, it's not ours. It's not our blood. It, we feel it. It's someone else. For many, if not most of us, we um, do not and maybe will not ever uh, resist sin to the point of shedding our own blood. That's the first thing. Then the second thing, um, verse 5, and have you forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? I'm going to stop there. So this, this reality that um, God is in it. That God is in it. The first thing I said is to get some perspective, how you can endure hardship. The second thing is to ask the question, what is God doing through this hardship? Because we can look at it all from the fleshly perspective, the hardship of the world, and we can miss what God is truly trying to do in our lives. Looking to him to say, um, what, um, what, what's, what, is, what is in this for me? I want to walk a line here of saying causation. We get hung up on causation. Well, so God's causing our suffering, right? There's a whole big conversation about that. When we're suffering, God's at work. That's just a fact. Like, God is in that. And that's what this scripture says to us. Um, connecting then the adversity we face to the love of God, to his love for us, um, to his dissatisfaction with leaving us the way we are. 
I say that because there are a few things that will shape us more radically than adversity, right? And we, we all like to win, we like to do well, but often that doesn't shape us, it, 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 not, not in ways that are maybe honoring to God. It, it, it maybe creates pride or boastfulness or, you know, uh, some other experience that's tempor- temporary, but, but few things that shape us like adversity shapes us. In this passage there, uh, isn't a quoted part? I don't know if your Bible has quotes around that part of the verse 5. Actually, it's funny, like verse 6-ish, because there's no 6 in my verses, which is kind of interesting. But in that portion, that's quote from the Proverbs, right? And I'm, there's three kinds, of adver- three, three kinds of discipline that are listed there, three kinds of um, um, manifestations of God's love to us in these verses. And I want to walk through them real quick, okay? Uh, the first one is discipline. So it says there, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, right? That's the first kind. Um, discipline is like training. I, I love this because we have this, um, in, the, in December, there's this little movie coming out called Star Wars, um, Chapter 7 or whatever, and I'm, I'm a child of the 70s, man. If you think you're excited, I'm excited about it. Um, but I always think about this word in the Greek because it, it's the same, uh, it's the same word. Listen to me now. I'm going to connect Greek to Star Wars. <laughs> Are you ready for the journey? Uh, Padawan, Right? Because it's like uh, padia in the Greek, and it means to be a learner, to be a trainer. I, I, I watched, I knew Greek, and then I was watching that, and I made the connection, not through Star Wars, but through the scriptures. I was reading, I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I watch them now, and I see those little kids growing up, you know, training, learning the discipline, learning, right? Um, that's the first kind of uh, love that the Father shows us, is training us up, teaching us things, showing us things. Sometimes in a hostile environment, sometimes in a safe environment, where we're not, there's not really, it's like, a, it's like a training ground. There's not really any harm, but we're learning things along the way. It means to give instruction or to give some correction. No, hold your hands this way, stand this way, get ready. That's one way. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, right? Now the second kind here says, and do not lose heart, when he rebukes you. This, this word kind of steps it up a little bit. It's a little more than like a, a training program or an exercise or a learning. Um, and this is to, um, and this is maybe, I would say, a little more painful process. Because, you know, when, you, when you're training, you maybe feel like you have some control still. You, you're on the same team. Um, here, this idea of rebuking means to expose us or to show us as being guilty of something. To one of the most painful experiences, but to have our sin laid bare. Just to see the reality of our, our sin, to be shown guilty. Um, I, went, I went and looked at both the Greek and also the Hebrew in Proverbs and um, how they connect, where, where it's quoted here in uh, the book of Hebrews. And it also means um, to get right in the middle of our lives, right? So all of a sudden, it's not an instructor who's out there who's, you know, kind of trying to give us some instructions and a goal and all that, but it's, it's God entering into the midst of us to be right in the middle of all my stuff and to be going, no, this isn't right over here, and no, look at the sin over here, and yes, this is how we move forward, and this is the way you're called to be, and it's, it's very invasive. It's more painful to walk out that kind of correction from the Lord. And that's what it says. Don't lose heart then. When he rebukes you, when he gets in the middle of your business, when he convicts you of your sin, you know, it could be easy to be overwhelmed with that. He says, no, don't lose heart because the Lord disciplines those he loves, right? It's a demonstration of God's love for us. Then the third one is here in that third part of that. Oh, there are six in mine. Look, I found my six in my Bible. He punishes everyone he accepts as a son. This is the hardest. I must be honest. This is the hardest one for me to understand because the word punishes 
here means to whip. It really does. Like, there's some other words they try to get around it, but it means to, it means to take, like, a strap and put, like, pieces of glass and nail and, and then hit another person with it. Opening wounds, causing real, real pain. Um, it's not a hypothetical or theoretical thing. And, and the word says that, that um, he does that to everyone he accepts as a son, that no matter the level of the difficulty we're going through, we ought to look to Jesus, to God, and say, God, what are you doing in this for me? Don't, don't miss this. It's not to look at God and say, God, what do I have to do to make the suffering stop? See, that, that's a different heart, isn't it? Um, God, what, what do I have to, how can I, I please you so you stop doing it? No, no. He says, everyone that's mine experiences this. Everyone that I claim is my own. And so all of a sudden, it's not about finding a way around, finding a way to circumvent the pain, finding a way to, to pull back and, oh, that was a close call. But it's a way to endure to see through to our Heavenly Father who is calling us to something better. What did the word say? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because there's something better coming for those of us who are children of God. Even better than our current comfort or our current um, physical, you know, pain levels. So that's the second way we can overcome hardship, right? To look for God and walk through it. Walk right through it with him. Knowing all the while it is an act of love for our good, right? We... We, we equate all this stuff to meanness. You're, you're being mean. No. He's being loving. He's making us ready. There you go. Verse 8. Read with me. If you are not disciplined, so see, here, some people say, I'd rather not. Thanks for the offer. Um, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. The third way you can overcome adversity in your life is to realize that everyone, it says it right in the middle of verse, has hardship. Everyone. And it's not a competition about who's suffering the most. But no matter what you're going through, you can look around in your life. If you're honest with God and honest with yourself, you can run, and you can, you can get caught up in this bubble of, of the, the me problems. I, all this is so affecting me. But if you turn your eyes off of yourself for a minute and you look around the world around you, others are suffering. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that everyone undergoes discipline. Everyone. Everyone is suffering. Everyone is paying a price. And it's all unique. Like, it doesn't mean that they're suffering in the way you are. But one way is you can realize that others um, face adversity also. Uh, there's a scripture that says something to that exact effect, doesn't it? There's no, no suffering that you've known, no temptation that you're facing that has not known, has not been made known to all mankind. One of the dangers that we have is we, we come into trials and difficulties and we begin to isolate ourselves and we begin to say, poor me, and we begin to think that we're the only person that has this problem. And then part of the problem becomes, too, that then we also don't tell anyone we're having this problem because we're ashamed of it, right? We're not scorning the shame of the problem. We're not going to say, hey, I'm having this problem. I want to help with it. And so we suffer in isolation and alone. We, we isolate ourselves and we suffer alone because we're, we're embarrassed or ashamed to admit the problems that we're having. We won't look around. And we'll begin to believe that the suffering is unique to only us. Yeah, Bill, I, I hear you this morning. I know everyone suffers, but nobody suffers the way I suffer, right? No, everyone's suffering. I, I have a question. That, um, is there, um, do you have a tendency uh, to believe that your suffering is unique to you, that no one else could possibly understand what you've gone through? That no one else can possibly, has ever possibly been where you are. I can tell you one of the great encouragements that I've found in my own life as I've gone through my life um, and made huge mistakes and fought huge battles and been completely wore out is that brothers and sisters come alongside usually after I have the courage to say, man, I don't know what to do. I'm having this big problem. And they'll come and they'll say, we remember when we went through that also. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's hope. Oh, you went through this also. You came out the other side. 
God was faithful to you through. Oh, you learned something about yourself. Oh, you were transformed by the experience. Your heart was broken a little more. You were shaped by what God did through it. I want you to consider what's the result of that thinking where you think no one can suffer like that but you versus um, understanding that everyone faces adversity. So that's three. Get some perspective. Look at what God's doing in his love and realizing others suffer also. And then the fourth, um, find God's purpose for good in the suffering or believe that God has good purpose in the suffering. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. Moreover, we all have human fathers who discipline us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live, right? So the comparison went on. Verse 10, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So there's a comparison between the discipline of an earthly father, and it says that an earthly father disciplines for a short period of time, right? Tries to train, tries to encourage, tries to rebuke, tries to correct for a while. And I would say the other part of it, and it's a guess. <laughs> it's, it's a guess, right? Um, about what's really going to bring about the best in your life what parents want. But our Heavenly Father, discipline is not temporary, but ongoing, and it is for our good. As a matter of fact, it's listed out here um, some very specific things, right? That God's discipline is for our good. That all these ways that we face um, adversity with Him uh, is, has a purpose in our life. Don't, don't miss that. And then the second thing, which is mentioned here now, is that God's discipline is for our holiness. Verse 10, God's discipline is for our good that we may share in His holiness. That's almost like self, I mean, the text is self-evident there, right? It's about making us holy. That's the purpose in it, which is by definition good for us. And, and then the third, that God's discipline later in our lives, later in our experience, produces fruit of peace. I'm going to rework, read it with me. It says, um, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's the way it's interpreted. But I love to see the progression here that says that God's discipline later produces the fruit. That's what the word in the Greek is. It's the same word as the fruit, like fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of peace. And for those trained, yields righteousness. So these two things come together, peace and later righteousness, that we, we learn through suffering, that we learn what God is doing. It, it, it produces holiness, goodness. It's good for us. It's, it produces holiness produces peace, and it yields righteousness in our lives, right? So those are kind of the four ways to endure. Now, there's a lot of text left in this chapter, so don't, don't freak out. Because what we get to next, then, is the call that we have to partner with God in our discipleship, to willingly go and be a trained person, to learn with Him. And that's what we're going to pick up on now, right? Therefore, see... Because all this is true, because there are good things from God, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. It means lift up your hands at a tendency to want to quit and your knees that wobble and make level the paths for your feet so that the lame will not be disabled but rather healed so you can find a way to move forward, right? Here it goes. Make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy. Look at what the word says. You disciples, make every effort as much as it's up to you, as much as you're able to live at peace, right? To, to, to choose to do that, as much as you're able to do that, and be holy. Set apart. Set aside. Don't willingly wallow in the mud. Walk with God through what he's training you. Learning the holiness 
Without holiness, no one can see the Lord, it says. 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. That's a powerful thought right there. Make sure that no one else misses the grace of God is offered to them. And that no bitter root grows up, causing trouble and defiling many. A bitter, a bitter root in your own heart. What, what you should have, what others have, whatever that is. Just make, work at this stuff. See, 16 is crazy. See that no one is sexually immoral. No one? Part of my job is, is to help no one else be sexually immoral. That, that seems a little too far, doesn't it? There's something um, particularly uh, twisted in our sexuality that we have to be uh, attentive to. We have to, we have to bring the gospel to. We, we have to see with the eyes that God has it. If you don't believe it, look at the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They were ashamed. The, before this, says they were naked and felt no shame. And then after sin, they were ashamed. Make sure that no one has sexual immorality in their lives. It's, it's a powerful thing. Or, look at Next, make sure that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted his inheritance, uh, he wanted to inherit his blessing, it was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, although he sought the blessing with tears. And I think this, this might seem like a strange place to bring up Esau, you know. Esau was mentioned in chapter 11, by the way, of Hebrews also. But Esau is, is a strange person to bring up here, except for this, that we often would rather alleviate temporary suffering than gain an eternal reward. I want to say that again. We would often rather, God, just make the pain stop now. I don't care what it costs. And in the story of, of Jacob and Esau, Jacob had his mom make a special bowl of soup and Esau, this great burly man who could have easily gone without a meal, smelled it, desired it, and wanted it right now. He says, bring me, bring me the bowl. And Jacob says, well, give me your inheritance. And Esau says, fine. I just want the soup. And you and I look at that and go, Esau, you're an idiot. But then in our own lives, when hardship comes, I just want the soup. <laughs> I don't, I don't want the suffering. I don't, I don't want my eternal inheritance. I just want the right now. I want the gift right now. I don't want to wait for you. I don't want to believe in you. He, he sold his inheritance for, what does it say? A single meal, a moment of relief. And that, I think, is the danger of, of not having a godly perspective on suffering. No, God, we will go hungry if we end up with you. We will wait for you, for your best for us. Have you ever been tempted in your life? to give up something that's very valuable for a moment of pleasure or a moment of, of, of um, relief. I don't want to say peace because it's not peace because as soon as that bull was gone, he was hungry again, you know? It doesn't bring anything lasting. What temporary pleasure in your life would you be tempted to have instead of having God's eternal promise in Jesus Christ? That question will reveal a lot about where you are as a disciple of Jesus. All right, now we're going to wrap up here. 18. Then you have not come to a mountain that has been touched, that cannot be touched, or that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, and to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even as an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. He's talking about the revelation of God on the holy mountain. It was a terrifying place to go. I always think about Moses being this lucky guy, like, I get to go to the mountain and see God, right? And he came down and his face would glow, right? It says, I am terrified. 
I'm trembling with fear to go to this God. And what the word says here in Hebrews is, you are not called to that kind of a relationship. You are not called to that kind of a space where one misstep, one error, one screw up, and you're done for. You're gone from the planet. Instead, look at what it says. But, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. I mean, do you hear the invitation here into the God's kingdom? To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written, look, past tense, in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new promise, and to the sprinkled blood that gives you, and here's another word from the First Testament, a better word than the blood of Abel. You remember Abel's sacrifice was found worthy in God's sight, and Cain killed him for it. Remember the story, that you come with a sacrifice that speaks better for you than the blood of Abel, that we have this gift in Jesus. So because of that, because it's not a terrifying place, but a relationship with God, it's this beautiful place where angels worship and, and, and heaven, you know, just sings for his glory. See that you do not refuse the one who's speaking. If they did not escape when they refused him and he warned them on earth, how much less will we if we refuse him when he warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now, as he has promised, once more I will shake the earth, and not just the earth, but the heavens. And the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is the created thing, so that what cannot be shaken might remain. It's the idea that I'm going to shake the cloth again, and everything that doesn't matter will fall out, and all that will be left is what matters. And that's what our faith should look like. All the suffering, all the pain, it's shaking out the stuff that doesn't ultimately matter for the thing that does, which is the eternal kingdom relationship with Jesus. Therefore, look at what it says, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken or shaken out, let's be thankful and worship God acceptably in reverence and awe, because our God is an all-consuming fire. The idea is that we aim towards Jesus and what he has for us at all costs, and that we keep that in mind even as we suffer. So with this, I'm going to ask, um, can, is it reasonable, and maybe you disagree completely, you say, man, this was, for, you know, all over the place today, and, and I don't agree at all. That, that cannot be love. That God's love can't look like that kind of difficulty and pain, right? Um, if you think it, it, it can't, um, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's what the text said today. Look at Jesus. Look at what he suffered. Um, he was trained up as a child. That's what the scripture says. It says he amazed the teachers in the synagogue by his training, right? He was exposed. And not just exposed in the cross, but he was exposed to the people. He was exposed. He was, what he said, I have no place to even sleep. I don't have any shelter. I'm constantly vulnerable to the elements. And then, of course, he was caused to suffer greatly. All to demonstrate God's great love and God's great justice. It's a gift to us. Today, we're going to celebrate communion together, right? So we, we have a, um, a two-part uh, response today. Um, the first is this, that if you don't think that God's love looks like discipline, I want us to bring to mind the, the life of Jesus and what he endured and what he suffered. And literally even what we talked about with the, the whipping that he endured at the hands of sinful men, right? But that was proving God's love and God's justice at the same time. If you don't know that Jesus died for your sins, if you don't know that he shed his blood so that you and I could be free, if you don't know that he took us from the terrifying mountain into the kingdom of God, then I invite you today just to, to, to ask him about that. Say, God, can this be true? 
Is this what, what your word says about who you are? Is it really true that the, it depends more on you than on me at all? That my salvation is rooted in you and not in my own works or ability or goodness or lack of sin? And, and, that, and that through Jesus, that we can cast off all these things that hinder us and bind us down. If, if you don't know that today, I invite you to pray. Just talk to God about that. Um, there's no formal, there's no right words to say. Um, just talk to him about, God, is this really what your life is about in Jesus? And then after we pray, we're going to come forward as you feel led, and we're going we're gonna to receive communion. But um, I, want you, I want us to remember that today, that everything that we do, um, we stand at the foot of the cross. Everything we do is because of him. And that no matter what we are going through, no matter how difficult the, the, the suffering, it's not something that's unknown. As a matter of fact, the, the gospel um, proves to us that Jesus knew it well. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the chance that we um, have to respond to your good news, the good news that we... Um, we, we owe you an infinite price, and yet you paid the infinite price in your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Father, for um, the, the, the struggles that we do have, the real um, of, uh, hostility that we face um, in this world because of you and because of our own sin, uh, we pray a prayer of thanks that you have just washed us of that stuff. That, that, you, that you, in the cross, you, you bore the sin unto death, that you paid the price, that the work, as your son said, is indeed finished in Jesus' name. Father, for anyone here who still is laboring under the lie of the enemy that would say you must work harder, do more, you know, whatever those things are, that to, pray, to pay, to make yourself right so you meet God, you, you can be okay, that, that that lie would be exposed for what it is and that the truth of the gospel would shine brightly through the power of your Holy Spirit, that, they, that we would all see the truth together. And then, Father, as we turn our hearts and lives towards you and we surrender ourselves to you, May we again fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we again take account of his suffering on our behalf. And may we again uh, pursue his model of living a life after you. I thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us to worship you today. I pray, Father, now that um, you would lead us as we respond to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. The word says that um, on the night he was betrayed, he took a cup and he thanked God for it. And then he um, offered it to the disciples and he said, take this, it's a cup of a, a new promise made in my blood. This is before the cross. I don't even understand what the disciples knew what this meant, right? And, and he said, every time you receive it, remember me. And then the word says that he took uh, bread in the same way. He gave thanks, Christoed it, and then he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this bread and eat it. And every time you taste it, remember me. Today, the communion is offered for you to respond to if you know him as Savior. You're welcome to his table. Maybe you just pray the prayer today. You say, God, I need you in my life. You're welcome to his table to receive and remember his price paid for you and for me. As you feel compelled, you're, you can come up and, and respond and receive communion together. We're going to take it by intention, which just means you take a little piece of the bread, you dip it into um, the juice, and you receive it as you feel that. We will not wait to receive it together. So as you feel that by the Lord, come and receive communion together. Pray with me if you would, Father God, for uh, your grace and for your mercy and for your great love and your great discipline and your great passion and your great forgiveness and all that you've given us and all that you are. We give you thanks and praise. We pray today, Father, that everything that we do would be an exercise in drawing near to you and knowing you and worshiping you as you're worthy to be worshiped. We pray, Father, a prayer of thanks for your Son and our Savior, Jesus, who gave his life that we might be free. May we never forget. May we never forget to taste and see and know and believe and live in a way that we are yours. We thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us to come into your house and to worship you and to pray. We pray, Father God, that you receive all of this offering for your glory and for our good. Amen.